Great Air Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look each week at some of the key stories in the region covered by RFA and the journalists who cover them. I'm joined by Paul Eckert, who heads up RFA's English language service. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing well, Matt. Thanks. Good to hear it. So I will be looking later at the growing humanitarian crisis caused by Myanmar's military coup and the brutal crackdown that has ensued. Hundreds of thousands of people have been forced from their homes by fighting in far-flung regions of the country. I'll be talking to Jormin Tun of RFA's Burmese service about that. First, we speak to a prominent human rights lawyer about the People's Tribunal that was held in London about a week ago to examine evidence that Chinese authorities are responsible for a genocide against Uyghur Muslims in that nation's far west. Over to you, Paul. Thanks, Matt. Nuri Turkel was born in Kashgar in Xinjiang in 1970 in a re-education camp, and he spent the first several months of his life in detention with his mother at the height of China's Cultural Revolution. Now a U.S. citizen and a lawyer with long experience in Uyghur human rights advocacy and research, in 2020, Turkel was appointed a commissioner on the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. He's also a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. We've asked Nuri Tekel to evaluate last week's Uyghur Tribunal in London, where more than 30 witnesses and experts provided testimony on detention camps, torture, forced labor, and other policies to help determine whether China's treatment of its ethnic Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims constitutes genocide. First of all, thank you for making time for us. Thank you very much for having me on. I was able to watch a good bit of the Uyghur Tribunal from London last weekend, and I want to say that even for veterans who have followed the situation in Xinjiang since 2017, the tribunal offered some eye-catching witnesses and testimony. I'm thinking of the Chinese policemen and some of the other the survivors of detention. What aspect of the hearings left the strongest impression on you? First of all, the the way that it was organized, the venue, the set of questions that uh, the presiders uh, prepared, uh, the quality of the testimonies, even the translation, were almost spotless. I was quite impressed. The the management of the tribunal, the quality of the conversation, and specifically focus on evidence collection. In the meantime, it is heart-wrenching to listen to those camp survivors, uh, victims of the modern-day concentration camps and genocidal actions committed against Uyghurs by CCP. It is so difficult on a personal level to fathom that a government, people, could be this brutal uh, to another fellow human being. Some of the testimonies, some graphic details, almost uh, made me to lose sleep. I listened to, watched, rewinded uh, some of the testimonies more than once. And I was also very impressed by the quality of the expert witnesses' testimonies, the research uh, that they have conducted uh, on solar panel industry, the Chinese tech authoritarianism, uh, deliberate systemic attempt to prevent Uyghur population growth, uh, the sexual violence against the Uyghur woman, forced marriage, separating Uyghur children from their family members. At the end of the day, this tribunal will 
come to the conclusion, which is the intent, the practice, mens rea and actus rea are there to meet the internationally accepted legal standards for genocide. I'm sorry, and as a lawyer, you think they achieved that last week with uh, especially the expert views and the legal views? Uh, Chair uh, Sir Jeffrey Nice is a seasoned uh, prosecutor. He's a very experienced uh, jurist. I believe what this tribunal has been trying to do is something that governments, uh, including my own government, including the UK government, the European Union, should have done. These wonderful individuals presiding over this tribunal, the hearings, and the witnesses who provided uh, testimonies are something that can be done governmentally or through an international body. The, the reason is very simple, that some governments has not been able to uh, realize the severity of the problem that we're dealing with. And also the international community has not really uh, realized that there's an active genocide is taking place in a country that most of the countries around the world has a quite intimate relationship with, particularly in the economic aspect. So um, the international community should be feel embarrassed, uh, especially capable governments, well-resourced government entities, should be feel embarrassed that this has to be done uh, by a people's tribunal. This tribunal is doing something that no one has done in the, in the history, uh, Uyghur's human history. And I was quite impressed that this tribunal, for what's worth, got CCP's full attention. That's for sure. And I want to just return briefly to the tribunal. They have another round of uh, hearings in September at about three months exactly. What sort of uh, developments will happen between now and then? Is it just reviewing the day's events from last week and evaluating them at a certain level or their counter-arguments to what's going to happen in the, between now and September and then on going on towards uh, December when a verdict is expected? I am not privy to internal uh, working process, but what I can see reasonably happening from now on involves a number of things. One, review the transcript uh, to see what kind of evidence information provided in the first run the a tribunal can be used and what are the areas that this tribunal should dive deeper, investigate and hear more uh, evident, in the evidentiary aspect and policy aspect. That is one thing that I think that they will be doing. And also, based on the needs, uh, they will uh, look to invite uh, additional witnesses, some of them maybe returning witnesses, and some of them might be new witnesses. So that's another thing that they will do. And also, I do also see that they will continue to explain the reason of this tribunal, because China has been uh, trying to discredit, including to sanction uh, Sir Jeffrey Nice. So China is trying to tarnish, misinform the true intent of this court. China is purposefully, deliberately trying to discredit this tribunal by trying to link it to uh, governments. Uh, they even called Sir Jeffrey Nice names, uh, trying to link it to British intelligence. That's what they do when they have nothing to say. So um, the, the tribunal has a lot to explain uh, as far as their ultimate goal, as far as their the procedure and the work process. 
So uh, I think those are the things that they will do. And also in the meantime, I would also anticipate them uh, reaching out to international criminal law experts to seek advice, legal advice. As you may have noticed, uh, not everyone in the panel are lawyers. Uh, some of them are academics. Uh, some of them are businessmen. So they need to look into uh, advice, uh, opinion from the legal community. You've mentioned several times about China's uh, reaction to this, and they have been sort of jumping up and down and uh, denouncing both individual panelists as well as witnesses. Of course, they denounced uh, the Radio Free Asia reporting that went into some of our, our reports on the tribunal and on earlier related subjects. They've denounced Adrian Zenz. Is there anything surprising to you in the way China is dealing with this? Nothing Beijing does, uh, what CCP does, surprise me anymore. Uh, as someone who's been doing uh, human rights work uh, through my professional life, through my NGO work, uh, I never thought that a country trying to become a main, major player in international politics and economics would do something what we're experiencing. Uh, that in of itself uh, makes me to believe that Anything could happen and possible in China in a, in a negative terms. So the China's attempt to discredit bringing uh, family members and, and using their voice to condemn under dress, uh, those witnesses who provided personal accounts on a harrowing experience is just appalling. What kind of people would turn a family member, one family member against another? What kind of people do that kind of stuff? I mean, what kind of standard, what kind of image would they see when they look at the mirror at night before going to bed? When you look at the people that they assemble to condemn, the witnesses, their facial expression, the fear in their eyes are telling that they are doing it under dress. Indeed, we have seen this before, and I have to think it's counterproductive because China watchers will have seen this kind of thing not merely with the Uyghur case, but even go back to Falun Gong or any number of cases, their response to this kind of international attention is fairly scripted. Uh, you would think they would try something new. You put your finger on something that is very important. China has been miscalculating a lot of things. People think China is a very smart country. The leaders uh, running the country are very smart people, maybe uh, on some issues, but most of the things that they have been doing, asinine. They miscalculated initially that people will look the other way, would not care when they're setting up industrial scale concentration camps. They thought that the world will ignore them when they're using technology to advance their genocidal campaign. Not only that, exporting to other countries. As we speak, 80 countries have adopted uh, Chinese surveillance technology. And also they miscalculated that they could divide American people and turn them against each other by playing domestic politics, Republican Party against Democrats, vice versa. It didn't work. We have a bipartisan support. We have a bipartisan consensus. 80% of the American public wants hard position on human rights in China. So they continue to make bad policies instead of bringing those poor individuals to condemn their loved ones. They should have start closing down these modern-day concentration camps, try to show to the world that they're grown-up adults, that they can own their mistakes. Everyone, anyone could make a mistake. They, they should own the mistake and try to find a way to correct it. 
they blame our country. They try to play whataboutism. But we are good at in self-correction. We identify issues. We own it. We have courts. We have free press. We have a free public debate. We correct things that we make mistakes on. I want to ask you in closing, even if China ignores the outcome of the tribunal, what are the kind of policies that nations can do to enforce the goals? And I'm thinking in terms of the trade related, you know, the, the forced labor content laws, the things that are already happening. What would you like to see more of uh, as a result of this tribunal and the rising international recognition of the troubles there? I am positive and hopeful, uh, cautiously optimistic that uh, this will compel policymakers around the world to, to do the right thing. And the number two, the finding by this tribunal will uh, make it more acceptable evidence. So it will be a people's tribunal finding as opposed to an individual finding by few uh, researchers. Uh, they always finger point at Adrian Zenz, but Adrian Zenz use open source information, the information that the Chinese are bragging about for the reports that he's been publishing. So th this will be um, a good incentive for some skeptics in various capitals, policymakers, legislators to do the right thing. And then two, this will educate public more. You know, it's available. It's in YouTube. It's the, the testimonies. It's public. It was broadcasted live. Uh, translated, it is available for public review. So there are multiple benefits. Of course, they will be even more meaningful if there was a, a mechanism or a method in which the perpetrators could be held to account. But we're not there yet. Now to Myanmar, where the bad news keeps coming. With diplomatic efforts by ASEAN yet to get off the ground, Myanmar is in an increasing state of armed conflict. The junta is intent on crushing its opponents, and growing numbers of the pro-democracy forces are abandoning peaceful resistance and taking up arms, although they're heavily outgunned. The net result is escalating violence and a mounting toll on populations in far-flung regions of the country as the Tatmadaw employs battle tactics that impose a heavy toll on civilians. Relief groups estimate that more than 230,000 people have been displaced since the coup just over four months ago. The UN Special Rapporteur for Myanmar, Tom Andrews, this week warned that the upheaval in Kaya State in eastern Myanmar could lead to mass deaths from starvation, disease and exposure as people flee into the forests to escape the fighting. To discuss the growing numbers of IDPs across the country from various conflict zones, I'm joined by Jormin Tun, a senior editor with RFA Burmese. Welcome, Jormin Tun. Thank you very much, Matt, for inviting me again. Good to have you, Jormin Tun. So first of all, Tom Andrews drew attention to what's happening in Kaya State, and it certainly sounds like it's the worst affected region can you tell me a little bit about what's going on? According to local residents and aid groups, more than 100,000 people had been forced to flee glaciers in Gaya State, who are now hiding in the jungles without shelters or food, which could began a humanitarian disaster. 
In chaos state alone, people defend forces, PDF militias, which was found to protect people against the military brutality, is fighting with the truth loyal to the Hunter and Dimorso and Fruso townships, uh, which is uh, next to the southern Shan state. There were multiple reports that military forces attack residential areas, religious buildings, where civilians are shattering, and medics and aid workers were shot as well. And the, the Tamador has been using heavy weapons against people in Kaya State, is that right? A resident told us that in a single day, the uh, Tamador was firing at least 40 rounds of artilleries uh, pointing to the mountain ranges where the uh, PDF members, militia members are hiding as well as those places where the civilians' refugees are hiding as well. You know, no wonder people are fleeing this kind of scenes and in the situation. Yeah, it does sound like a terrible onslaught. You know, are there any relief groups who are able to reach these displaced people in Kaya State? Not the uh, prominent ones, but local aid groups are trying to help the refugees. But the problem is that military troops open fire who came out to carry food supplies uh, for the refugees, which means that food supplies for the refugees are being cut off by the uh, hunter. So most of the uh, relief groups are, are community-based organizations, not the uh, international NGOs or the uh, humanitarian groups, just only lo local community groups trying to help I mean, I imagine these local relief groups don't really have the resources that some of the international aid outlets would have. And we saw news this week that one of the major aid organizations, Medicines Sans Frontières, leaving Myanmar, which shows what the conditions must be like in the country. Do we actually know of any civilian casualties in Kaya State so far? We have um, a few casualties here and there, but not the total number. We can't get it right now. Yeah, it is very difficult to get information from there. I mean, we have a reporter, a stringer, who we know is displaced in Kaya State, and it's very difficult to reach the reporter. This area in Kaya State that's coming under attack, which has displaced more than 100,000 people, which is about a third of that region's population, it's near to an area in southern Shan State where there's also been mass displacement. Can you tell me about that? Yes. The conflict area in, in Kaya State is uh, next to southern Sham states where Mobia and uh, Faircombs townships. In those areas, there was uh, fighting between the uh, local forces and the military soldiers and troops in, in the region as well. So 100,000 people are already displayed in the southern Sham state, which is next to Kaya State. So totally in the area, between two states, there's that more than 200,000 civilians are displayed already at this point of time. Okay, so obviously a very serious situation there. Now, I hear there's also been mass displacement in Chin State, which is on the western side of the country. What's the situation there? Chin State is one of the first states which went into um, uh, resistance. I want to give you some background on this. Uh, it is interesting indeed, and I think that Dong San Suu Kyi and the Anadi governments are organizing uh, support among the ethnic Chin populations 
Anari was able to elect a Chen vice president in the cabinet and also gained support from several young intellectual Chen leaders and humanitarian workers like Dr. Sasa. Um, after the February 1st military seized the power, people in Chen state came out on streets protesting against the coup by thousands. And some of those who witnessed the military brutality found uh, people's defense forces in large cities in Chen State in April. Notably, the first civilian militia forces who resisted using traditional Tumis rifles was found in Mendan, which is in, 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 a, in one of the large cities in, in uh, Chen State. According to news reports, Chen Lin defense forces had killed some hundred hunter troops between March and uh, May. So there's a quite strong resistance in the region. All right. I mean, if that's true, that's inflicting um, major casualties on the military. Although we must add that we don't have confirmation of those casualty figures. You mentioned just before then, John Minton, about Dr. Sasa. Can you just briefly describe who he is for any of our listeners who don't know? He has been a leader in the, their communities in Chen State. After the coup, the Aleda MPs, NRE MPs, who were ousted from parliament, they were able to organize him to be part of their opposition against the coup. When they found National Unity Government, NUG, he was appointed as the uh, Minister for International Cooperation. It's a, a prominent figure in the in the shadow government from, from Chin State, which is one of the most remote places in Myanmar. So that's interesting. What other regions have seen a lot of IDPs from fighting? According to uh, local residents, 14,000 in Kachin State, 100,000 in Mobia Fako areas in southern Shan State, as well as 2,000 in northern Shan State, 60,000 in Kayen State and 15,000 in Chen State, as well as the 15,000 in Sakai region and 10,000 in Magui region as of the first week of June, according to our RFA reports. Okay, so they're scattered in, in many regions of the country. Now, I mean, as we know, Myanmar has for decades had a chronic problem with ethnic minority populations being displaced by fighting between ethnic rebel groups and the Tatmadaw. I think about half a million IDPs even before the coup. But we've not just seen fighting in ethnic minority regions since the coup. We've seen displacement of civilians from some cities in the lowlands in recent months. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, this time around, IDPs are in the middle of the lower Myanmar as well, uh, not only in the ethnic areas, Sagai, Mandalay, Magui, Bako and Yangon regions, where most of the anti-coup resistance was very strong. First, the people fled from violent military crackdowns and indiscriminate shootings, the civilians in the major population centers like Yangon and Bago. For example, in Bago, tens of thousands of residents flee by the violent crackdowns in a single day in second week of April. Do we know if these people have returned to Bago yet? It is very hard to know. People, when they are fleeing, they, they run in groups in large number. But when they come back, it is, you know, sneaking. Some of them dare not to come back because they might be caught or they might be arrested or they might be shot. Or there's many reasons we can't see that kind of uh, scene in public. 
So it is very hard to put an exact number on how many people have been displaced by the fighting on or how many people have returned home. Do you expect the, the displacements to be prolonged? As you know, we've seen other people displaced by conflicts in Myanmar over the years, and they basically, you know, they fled to other countries like Thailand for decades, and other people have been displaced in Kachin State, you know, over the past decade. And what's your sense of this? Do you think these people are going to be away from their homes for a long time? Yes, in, in short, it can be prolonged, um, in part by relentless resistance by the civilian forces and violent crackdowns by the haunter and ethnic areas for some foreseeable future. In some cases, by fear or arrest and mistrust among each other, whether local informers could turn them in if they return homes, especially in major cities like Yangon and Mandalay. Uh, people who came out of those cities, they could not return home uh, as they wish. So they might be stranded somewhere in the jungles or at the border or in other countries like Thailand or India. Another reason this can be prolonged is if local defense militias can capitalize support from some major ethnic groups like KIA and KNU, which is already the case now. Is, uh, this displacement would take several years as the clashes will be going on until a reasonable political solution is achieved. Indeed, and it doesn't seem like a political solution is on the horizon. Jomin Tun, thank you very much for talking us through the problem of Myanmar's IDPs since the coup. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jomin Tun and Matt, for that overview of the plight of Myanmar's growing legions of IDPs. Much of the post-coup upheaval in Myanmar, and thinking in terms of mass protests we saw after the military takeover, has been relayed to us through social media and people's ability to document it with their cell phones. But what's happening to the IDPs is much harder to track. Yeah, you're right, Paul. I mean, when people have to flee into the forest because they're shelling in the town or village, they're typically out of the range of the internet and it becomes very difficult to document what's happening to them. It brings to mind the hundreds of thousands of Karen, Shan, Kachin and other minorities who were internally displaced in Myanmar by armed conflict in the country's border regions in the pre-internet days. You know, it's another sad sign of the tragic redux we're seeing in post-coup Myanmar. Please join us again next week for another sampling of RFA's coverage. Until then, you can visit our website, rfa.org. Our past podcasts are available on platforms like Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you have any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. stands for Eyes on Asia. I'm Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia, alongside Paul Eckert. This series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again.